You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. The literature today that we're going to discuss was written by someone who the Meiri, uh, who was one of the most important uh, Rishonim to organize time periods and who's who, felt that this man, Rabbi Nonisim, was not actually, as he is mistakenly known as Shear pointed out last week, Rabbi Rappaport, uh, who we spoke about last week, he's not a gone because he didn't live in that area. The Miri says he also was living at a time right when Gaonic life was ending. The Miri calls this the period of the Rabbonim, the Mephorshim. Um, Miri is, is actually bothered by the fact that despite the sometimes brilliant and, and very important statements that we find from the Gaonim, we don't find a comprehensive work on their part explaining the Talmud uh, line by line in a, in a systematic fashion that people could use. We, we find responses to, to questions, to specific points, to issues, to uh, particularly vexing passages, but not works of Perush, which the, which the Meiri says was something that was the hallmark of the Rabbonim. And he feels that Rabbeinu Nisim and Rabbi Yaakov of Karawan represents the first of these, what he what we would probably call Rishonim, these Mufarshim who felt it necessary to write a work on the complete, or at least a systematic work that deals with page by page difficulties. And uh, as we know, we have, of course, Rabbeinu Gershom and Rashi. Uh, the Sefer Mafteach is a, basically a contemporary of Rabbeinu Gershom. Uh, he, Rabbeinu Nisim, was actually a uh, someone who was a sort of a Talmud Chaver to Rabbeinu Hananel, uh, who, as the Marshal says, called Dvorov Heim Divrei Kabolev. Both Rabbeinu Nisim and Rabbeinu Hananel feature prominently in the work that we mentioned last week, the Sefer HaOruch. So the Oruch was very familiar. He lived uh, the generation afterwards, but he was very familiar with the Biurim of Hananel and Nisim. Nisim learned by Rav Hananel's father, Rabbeinu Chashuel. There's, of course, the, the Raiva Harishon in his book, Sefer HaKabol, explains how, and this, of course, is the legend of the four captives and how they ended up uh, in various places. Of course, this is really um, sort of a, a, a fictionalized uh, description of how Torah life started to disconnect itself from Bovell. Uh, because remember, some of the captives went up there uh, to France and Germany, and the others were uh, in, uh, in in North Africa. So really, what the this story about how they were ransomed and brought to these various cities, and each one of them became a superstar in that city, um, 
this is probably you know laced with a lot of fiction. Uh, the the main reason the 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 Raiva, the author of the Sefer Kabbalah, wanted to explain this was because by the time he was writing this work, Bovil was was waning. The control, the hegemony of, of Bovil was 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 really in doubt, and the yeshivas were on their own, uh, strong and and vibrant and vital. Now, Karwan, which was in Tunisia, um, 140 kilometers south of Tunis, uh, was the seat at one time of the Fatimid Empire. And as we mentioned a number of weeks ago, uh, wherever the seat of the Muslim Empire was, became a very important town for Jews to exercise their influence as much as possible. Uh, but Karawan was important for another reason as well. It was important because it was the way stop for the Chubos Hagoinim uh, to make their way even further up the, uh, the North African coast into Spain and beyond, into the Andalusian areas. Uh, it's, it's no exaggeration to say that from the year 800, approximately, uh, most of the chubos, if we would say, take the chubos agonim, ones that we have discovered, as I mentioned last week, uh, in the Cairo Geniza and other places, that Karawan uh, represents probably uh, the largest area of, 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 of receiving those chubos. One of the most famous uh, Truvos, which is actually a, a book in itself, is of course Rav Shri Ragon's letter, the Igris Rav Shri Ragon, which was written to Rav Nisim's father, who named Yaakov, also the son of Nisim, that's Rav Nisim's grandfather, who wanted to have a clear and distinct description of how the Mishnah and the Gemara uh, came to be and the Seder Ishtal Shosadoros. And of course, the, what's known as the Igris of Shiragon is book number one in terms of how we approach our knowledge of rabbinic Jewish history, that this was a place of Chachamim. Uh, they were happy, not only did they help them in terms of influence with the Fatimids, but they also, Karwan was also a place that could appreciate uh, the, the philosophical and uh, sometimes obtuse points that needed to be fleshed out. They weren't just people that would just support and give money. And that's really test the testament to that, of course, is that when Hashuel comes there and Hananel, and along, you have to say, with, with, with Rav Nisim, uh, it really becomes an incredible Torah center on its own. Unfortunately, the city was about 1050 uh, and maybe it's about 1100. This was a one of the most important Jewish centers. Um, the 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 quality of its learning and this farm that were produced there, um, although many of them only survived in pieces, uh, was some of the most astounding work that uh, that the Jewish people in that period in the Middle Ages was able to produce. And uh, Poznansky and others have written monographs about the, the Anche Karlon. Uh, I, I, I'm going to uh, 
posit, at least for tonight, that probably the most, most multifaceted of these great men of Karon was Rabbeinu Nisim. Uh, part of it is because, as the Miri says, he understood where he was and what the generation needed. And what the generation needed was his works, his writings. Uh, and as Rappaport has pointed out in his monograph written in the 1830s, if one does a cursory survey of the Sefer Chassidim, the Rav Yod, the Orzerua, even Taisvis, you will find Rabbeinu Nisim there constantly. I mentioned the Aruch, of course, but everywhere. In fact, the work Megillah Storim is mentioned even more often in the Sefer that he called the Sefer Hamafteach. I want to talk about those two works. Other works as well. Shraga Abramson says there is at least five works that we can call five books that he, and he put out, but there's probably others as well, uh, and pieces of others. Rabbeinu uh, Nisim's Sefer, and let's, I'm going to divide tonight's talk into two, the Sefer Amafteach and the Sefer Begilastor. Now, the Sefer Amafteach, he explains in his introduction, uh, the, the work was seen by the Chida in Italy, he does saw it, he wasn't able to copy much of it, but he was able to see the manuscript. And in his masterpiece, Shem Agdoilim, the Chido mentions that he could see that at least the manuscript that he had was, was on Shabbos, Brochus, and Eirevin, Brochus, Shabbos, and Eirevin. And uh, Goldenthal, Yaakov Goldenthal, printed in Vienna in 1847, I believe, the edition of the first edition that we have of the Sefer HaMafteach. If one reads the very long introduction relative to the rest of the work of this book, one sees that Rev. Nusim explains not only the need for the book, but also the methodology of the Talmud and where he is getting in line to sort of uh, plug into that energy and explain it. What I mean to say is he says that the Talmud often is deals with a question and does not bring to the fore all the possible approaches and answers. Part of that is because, he says, that the names and of, of, of many of the Amarayim um, are connected to what they say in other places. What he says is that you know, when the Talmud was studied, and whether it was studied um, uh, by heart or by in manuscript, people using, whether it was uh, through their incredible memory or being able to go through the pages, knew where other pieces of the Talmud were that would flesh out that specific spot. In other words, you need, you need to, you have a, a, a opening to a doorway 
to an attic, uh, to an area where you're going to find more information. You will find a complementary sugya, and that sugya together with this one will give you the big picture. And the people who had studied the Talmud up until that point knew just by the names and just by sort of some sort of hint where to look in order to complete the learning. So the idea that we have, sort of like the, the elementary idea, the, the what I would call even a childish one, that, okay, I know this subject because I learned this Masechta, Rabbi Anissim rejects that. He says it's obvious that the knowledge of, of, of certain points needs the input from various uh, Talmudic discussions found in different Masechtas. And people who had studied the Talmud up until this point, maybe a hundred years before him, uh, were adept at connecting. So even though they would, would say, be Masechtas Baruchos, but they would know that there were parts of Psachim and Yuma and other places that would go together in order to flesh out what this topic was. And that it wasn't self-contained in one place. Therefore, what he was going to do was to provide in the Sefer Mavteach the whole panorama. The very first daf in Brochos, for example, which deals with the eating of truma, uh, the time of eating of truma. Rabbeinu uh, Nisim uses that as an excuse to go into an extremely lengthy uh, discussion about all the different types of, of foods, or whether it's truma, or meiser um, sheni, or carbonos that you would eventually be able, as as a person bringing the carbonos, to have a schus perhaps in achivas of those carbonos if shlomim is one of those carbonos or kahana meeting them, and he goes into the explanation of tuma and tahara, and the various levels. So when one learns brachos as a child or as a young adult, if you learn it with the Sefer HaMafteach, you actually are exposed to an encyclopedic understanding of all the different levels and all the different situations. That there's Meister Shani, of course, is different than Truma. And Truma, of course, is different than Carbonos. And all of and the idea of, of what is a Tvulion? And what does it mean? When is it uh, the idea of Achivas Truma and Tuma and Tahara? I don't know if he does that consistently, but the very first Dapin Shas, instead of, again, you could contrast this, of course, with, with the, the very first big Tosfas and Shas, which has to do with Kriyat Shema and why, what do we do with Kriyat Shema at night? And why is it that we land Kriyat Shema early? So Tosfas is really dealing with the problems of the here and now, meaning why is what we're in the Talmud different from what we're doing? That is one of the major uh, concerns of the Baleatesis. The second one is very similar to Rabbeinu Nisim, which is uh, opening up the Gemara to places all over Shas, seeing parallels, raising questions. Um, I would say that, that, that Nisim doesn't have the Tosis approach, which is, hey, this Gemara is against another Gemara. How are we going to be miyash of these two Gemaras? But rather, this Gemara is clearly dependent on this other Gemara. So what we have here is clearly just a piece of a larger, larger piece of 
Pi, which is therefore I'm going to write this work as a Mavteach. And therefore you're going to hear a little bit of, about Kohanim uh, going to uh, to be being Tobel, but you need to you need more to really have a expansive understanding of that first Daphne Shas and in general. So the Sefer Mavteach shares things that Tosfus also considers important. The difference being, of course, is the Tosfus approach and the Surah of Tosfus is more pilpulistic in terms of a question and an answer and a way to somehow make sense of things, as opposed to we need to absorb more information and see the big, big picture. You do get that big picture from Tosfus, but you get it in a sort of fighting fashion and you're, you know, you're sort of like sweating and say, did I, did I get it? Is, 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 am I right about that? As opposed to taking the hand of Rav Nisim, you are just going to be exposed. If the work, if we had his complete work, we would just be very knowledgeable about every subject and we would be able to see the big picture. Part of what, as Shear points out, comes up in whatever we have of Rabnissim, and he was correct about this, was his incredible use of the Yershalmi, mentioning the Yershalmi consistently. Now, of course, I mentioned last week, is Shear correct that uh, Nisim was a, a outlier in terms of his use of the Yershalmi? And he got it because Hushio was influenced by the Italians who had some connection uh, to Eretz Yisrael as opposed to the Babylonians. So there, as I've pointed out, Shear is probably a part of the recipe of the success of his book is his knowledge and his use of Yershalmi and allowing a person to use the Bavli to see the contrast between the Bavli and the Yershalmi or the parallels. And that is something which he felt was necessary as part of the Sefer HaMavteach. Now, the other work, Megillah story, uh, seems, although it's quoted even more often than the Sefer HaMavteach. Rappaport speculates that the book is uh, to sort of explain the most difficult passages, not just an encyclopedic overview of the pieces of the Talmud, but the ones that we know are thorny and difficult. Um, I, I think that that is probably 85% correct. There are so many little pieces of the Megillah Storim that I don't know whether one can paint it with exactly that brush. And there's probably overlap, just like there is in the works of, of many Rishonim and Achronim where a lot of what they write in one place is found in another. The same thing is true about the Ramban, where much of what he writes in the Mohammeds, well, not much, but many uh, chidushim that are in the Mohammeds, which is, of course, a defense of the Rif and an attack on the Balamor, find their way in some fashion in the chidushim of the Ramban. Uh, so you're going to expect writers uh, to restate or copy many of their points. And sometimes the line of demarcation between the books is not that clear, but I think the books are different um, and they deal with different points. I think the Megillah Star, and, and, and part of what I'm gonna show you tonight, 
And again, it would we have to be very careful if we have one or two examples and say, well, this is probably what the book is about. But I think I'm, in, I'm on pretty firm territory saying that the Megillah story was a work that was more, if not polemical, but at least trying to uh, struggle with philosophical questions and doubts, as opposed to the Sefer Mafteach, which was meant to be a guide to help people learn. Let me take two pieces, uh, one from the Sefer Mafteach and one from the Sefer Megillah story. This is a piece from the Sefer Amafteach. Remember, Brochos and Shabbos and Erevin. The Bryce says in Brochos and Daphnun Vav, Tanya, Ein Marin Dluin, that if you are seeing things in a dream, gourds, melons are only seen by someone who is a Yorin Shamayim. Hmm. Wow. What does that mean? So, Rav Nisim in his Sefer Mavtaech says, and I should mention here that Abramson, Shrag Abramson, has proved that the work was written in Arabic, but was, but it was such a Shikava book that it was, and it seems to have spread, as we said, from Karawan through North Africa into Spain, over the Darren Bells, into uh, Provence, up into France and Germany and was translated. Who was the translator? I don't know. But the book was clearly written originally in Arabic. Um, uh, Nisim wrote both of these works in Arabic. And again, let's all applaud Art Scroll and Colorin Publishing and everybody who's doing things in the vernacular because this is what the great Rishonim did. Um, the translations, as I said, um, uh, you know, many uh, scholars have pointed out, uh, leave much to be desired, but I think we can get the essential point here. So, by the way, uh, there was a strong connection, as I said before, between Caruan and, and, and the southern part of Spain. In fact, so strong that the great from Shmuel Nagid who was, in a way, the, one of the most uh, powerful leaders of the Jewish people in Spain. I had a, a very, uh, very strong relationship with Caruan, and specifically with the family of Nisim, uh, to the point that they actually became Mechutonim. Uh, Shmuel Nagid's son, who sort of took over the job as the leader of the Jewish people and a very high uh, position within the government, married uh, Rabbeinu Nisim's daughter. So, and at the death of Rabbeinu Nisim, who died before Rishmul Anogit, Rishmul Anogit composed an elegy that is extant, that uh, has been analyzed uh, for its beauty and its importance to Jewish history and what it tells us about the time. But anyway, but we see that the Bnei Sfarad had a connection to Rabbeinu Nisim. Rabbi speaks about the base medrash that he has, and it's possible that the same way Hananel and Hashuel had students coming from all over, 
it's possible that he had himself as a Rosh Hashiva and had a base Medrash. And they asked him, what's going on with this Gemara? What does that mean that uh, only a Yori Shamayim will see Druyim? I don't have a tradition about it. I tried to be a sponge in my younger years, and I tried to get what I could. We know Rahaigon wrote Chubas to him. We know that he tried to get what he could from Hashuel and from Hananel. But he says, I don't have a Kabbalah of this. The truth is, I just learned this Gemara, and I just did it quickly. But one, some, one of my Spanish students asked, what's going on with this Gemara? I said, look, I don't know Pshat in the Gemara. Chazal knew what they were talking about. They know about dreams. I, I can't tell you what it is. And as far as I know, they never explain why for a Yore Shamayim he gets melons. Maybe, though, thinking about it perhaps a little more, I think maybe now that I'm writing this book, I think I maybe have a pshat. Maybe there is a, a parallel between Yari Shemayim and Gourds. Let's think about them. We know, as the Yashalmi teaches us often about the Dluyim, Mesech Das Demai, and other places, what does Yashalmi teach us? Yashalmi teach us that Ein that they are what? That they are huge, and they have huge leaves. Ein Bukhal Peres Aretz They are the biggest vegetable. Right? The melons are the biggest, the melons, the gourds, the pumpkins. The They don't, even as big as they are, they don't rise high. God didn't fashion them in a way where the largest vegetable is like huge. As they get bigger, they actually seem to sink lower into the into the melon patch. That parallel is the way Yerushalayim. We know the Yerushalayim are considered the greatest. No one is better than them, as the pasuk in Eov says, "Hein Yiras Hashem He Chochma." They are one with Chochma, and the Gemara says, "Shekain Beloshin Yavani Kairin Laachas In One." Ten years Hashem. In other words, even though it's a Pasuk and Eov, it's making use of, of the Greek language. Hey, Yiras Hashem, One. Yiras Hashem and Chachmar, Uno, are one. So wisdom and Yerei Shamayim go together. And we know that as God gives Kavod to these Yerei Shamayim, these Chachamim, we know that they actually become, it's inherent, they get more anova, they become more modest. And he quotes the Medrash Yavam that the Torah gives a person in his, in his shoes, so to speak, in the shoes that he wears, the, what he, the way he moves among people, in other words, the heel, that it allows him to step and move and navigate is really built on Yiras Hashem. That's the Anova. 
And Yiras Hashem gives him that. Then he quotes the Yerushalmi. Or Yisrael. He never says uses the word Yerushalmi. It says, Whenever Chochmah, if you make Chochmah your crown, then you'll see automatically what a, the way you stride among people, your Akev, is going to be a novel. The Chochmah on your mind is parallel to the modest way you conduct yourself and move among people. And then he says in our Gemara too, the Gemara Didon, the Gemara that we call Talmud Bavli, which is sort of ours. What does it say in the Gemara Nechulin? Omra Kaddish Baruch Hu, Yisrael, the reason why I love you so much, even though you could rightly say, look at all the greatness God has given us, you specifically are memayat yourself. When Avram is called Nosi Elohim, Avram is given greatness, he's given the brismila, Malachim come to visit him. What does he say when he speaks to God after this, this moment? Anochi offer veifer. Moshe Aaron said, even after they had just brought the Jews out of Mitzrayim and they were riding high, right after that they said, what are we? Even after he becomes king of the Jewish people in such a great period of our history, he said, So we see that greatness lends itself, at least in practice, to even more anova and more sense of humility and how everything that you have comes from God and that you don't raise yourself up. Maybe that's why they compared a Yerei HaShemayim to Dluyim. Because Dluyim, as they get larger, as they get more significant, they're even lower in terms of the way, they, uh, the way we see them. And that's similar to the Yerei HaShem. So that is his idea. And, and again, this is not typical of the Sefer Mavteach, but this is a very cute pshat. Then he says, maybe even the word deluyin, what is that word deluyin, right? That's the Hebrew word or the, the word that's used. I'm not sure if it's in Tanakh, but that is the word deluyin. Deluyin can be a compound word. Dalu einai lamorum. Dalu means to actually look up when something was actually like a dali, which is sort of like a, a bucket that is lowered into a well, right? It's actually then lifted up, right? It's lowered to be lifted up. Dalu einai lamorum. I lifted up my eyes up to the heavens. And that is what Chiskia did, Chiskio. And we know Chizkiah, of course, being the Melech that he was, but still the Melech in such a great, wonderful period of our history, he also was a, 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 the paragon of humility. And what was that humility that they trusted God and were just hoping for God to direct their lives? That is Deluyim. So Deluyim, even the term that we know these gourds and pumpkins by, suggests the idea 
of constantly looking to God for your answers, which is what a Yorei Hashem is. And that's what we wait for. And he says, when I gave this answer, <laughs> he liked that answer. <laughs> Since they liked it, even though that's not really what this book is about, it says that Ezra was masaking that we should read two sections of the Torah before two fundamental times in our calendar. That we need to read the Kololos of Torah's Kohanim before Shruot, right? The Tochacha before Shruot, and then also the Tochacha before Rosh Hashanah that is read from Parshas Kisovo. So the Gemara mentions this in Megillah, and Tosas quotes here, Sholu Bebeis HaMedrash HaRabbeinu Nisim. That's our Rabbeinu Nisim from Karawon. Tosas had the book. They asked there, and then Tosas is writing 350 years later, approximately. So the book has traveled up to the land of the Baleatesis, up in uh, in, in, in France. Loba Machalkin, what was the question from Rabbeinu Nisa? Loba Machalkin parches with some v'yeilech v'shnayim. Kishiyesh be'ishabosis b'in Rosh Hashanah v'sukas below Yom HaKippur. V'in Machalkin matas v'masei sh'aruchos yoser. Okay, so let me explain what the question is. We know that by the time Rabbeinu Nisa was writing, that had already become almost uh, the complete acceptance everywhere of finishing the Torah in one year. And we know that when, as, as the calendar plays itself out, that we are going to place, um, based on the Gemara that's quoted here, we're going to place and make sure that we read before Shruas Parshas Pachukosai, and before Rosh Hashanah, we're going to read Parshas Ki Sovo. However, we know that when the calendar dictates that there's going to be two Shabbosim between Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot, right? And Yom Kippur is not going to be a Shabbos. So we, we're going to read Kisovoi, not right before Rosh Hashanah. Um, we're going to read Nitzavim, which we always do before Rosh Hashanah. And even though Nitzavim and Vayelech should go together, they're very short, and they both, they, they, there's not many psukim there, and the ideas of both seem to complement each other, those two sections, we split it up and we do Nitzavim. We do Nitzavim on uh, uh, before Rosh Hashanah. The Shabbos Shuva, we're going to do Vayelech. Then you're going to have Yom Kippur. The Shabbos after Yom Kippur, remember, there's two Shabbos on the Shabbos Shuva and the Shabbos after Yom Kippur. The Shabbos after Yom Kippur, which is before Sukkot, you're going to read Hazinu, right? So you're going to have Nitzavim before Rosh Hashanah, 
Shabbos Shuv is going to be Vayelech. And Hazinu is going to be in between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. Why, he says. Why don't we, in those years, based on the calendar, Matos and Masay are going to come together, these two big parshas. Why don't we split Matos and Masay? And therefore, what will be, what we'll read before Rosh Hashanah? We'll read based on what the Gemara says. We'll read Ki Savoy. And then the next Shabbos, Shabbos Shuvah, we'll read Nitzvah Vayelech together. That'll be the one book, the Shabbos Shuvah. And then in between Shabbos Shuvah and Suk, and Yom Kippur and Sukkot, right, the next Shabbos will be Hazino. That was the question of Rabbi Nisim Goy. Not Rabbi Nisim Goy, but Rabbi Nisim. That was the question of Rabbi Nisim, and Tosus knew about it. So first Tosus brings the answer that they suggested, and maybe it was Rabbi Nisim's suggestion, or maybe it was the suggestion of everyone. Again, one of the things we see that's beautiful about Rabbeinu Nisim is that it's, it's communal study. It's the study of the yeshiva. So what does he say? He says that In other words, the same way the Gemara says, the reason why we read the Kolos before Rosh Hashanah because we want all the clothes to be read. In other words, by reading them, they no longer will somehow become real. We read them, and therefore by reading them, we sort of live them, experience them, and we get them out sort of of the system. So this is also part of the clothes. So in other words, even though the Gemara only mentions Kisavai, but there's also Nitzavim. And since Nitzavim also has some bad stuff in it, we decide to do Nitzavim before Rosh Hashanah. Vayelech does not have the Klolis that Nitzavim have. Therefore, we split Nitzavim and Vayelech. That was the answer that Reb Nisim said. So Tosfus says, first of all, based on the Gemara of Abbasra, he says, you can see that the only Klolis that we really consider significant are the Klolis that are in Parshas Kisavai, where it says, that, that you're going to be sold and no one's going to want to buy you. Those are the clothes. But even though there's negative information in Nitzavim, and it seems to be that terrible, there is a description of negative things happening, those aren't called clothes that need to be read to sort of like expunge them. Then he says, says, in other words, why don't we actually make a triple parsha? Why don't we put Nitzavim and Vayelech and Hazinu all together? Because there's Klois over there, Mazai Ra'av, Lachumei Reshef, like these terrible aspects of hunger and other illness and demons that will come and, 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 and affect us. So therefore, Tosis has his own of Chidush. But, but Tosus's Chidush, which is a very important one, which I'm not going to get into now, was built on it was built on the uh, discussion that happened in the yeshiva of Rabbeinu Nisimus. There was discussion as to why the Kohanim have 
have developed the custom of putting out their hands and opening them in a way that there are the openings, the fingers are connected, and you have the openings um, uh, during Birchas Kohana. So the Raviyah, Rabbi Alevi, the great German posek, um, said, I didn't find it anywhere. He said, I've heard Darshanim explain it. Because they said, it says, Ko Sevarcho Yisrael. So the word ko has a cholim in it. But if it didn't have a cholim, kof hey, you would write it kof vav hey. So if you, the word kof vav hey is the term in Aramaic for a window, kave. And therefore, when the koanim do nesias uh, kapayim, they spread their fingers out and that is sort of like a window, God's window, to look through. Because um, they make their hands into windows, allowing God's sight and influence to enter to the community through those windows. That is what the, the, the Rav Yoh wrote. But he said he heard it only from Darshanim. Uh, quoted by the Raknanti, says this actually is a medrash. And he knew of this medrash. It isn't just something that Darshanim were speaking about. Um, so we see here that he was a master in Talmudic medrashic literature, and in many ways provided the sources that were beyond uh, others to be able to to, to to see. It wasn't necessarily, they, they, the Rav Yo was pretty much on the same page. The only thing that Rabbeinu Nisim, who comes uh, 200 years before him, uh, was able to add was he knew it from a medrash, a medrash that the Rav Yo was not aware of, which means it isn't just some cute idea, but it actually has a pedigree from Chazal. The last thing I want to do with you tonight is again from the Megillah story. Um, and this is a word-for-word -word quote from Rav Yehuda Chosid, Yehuda Chosid in the Sefer Chassidim. And as you can see here, he says, I decided, again, this is a work that was uh, meant to be a moral halachic guide for life. And the Hasidic Ashkenaz up there in Germany, Rabbi Yudachosiv, the son of Shmuel, others, the Rekeach, they seem to have been quite aware of Rabbeinu Nisim's work. And they felt that part of it, at least, needed to be preserved. Obviously, the fate of works like this, like Megillah Starim, uh, are unfortunate that, that they only survive in pieces like this that are quoted by others. But this is one of the largest pieces that is found, um, uh, copied by the Hasidic Ashkenaz. What is the point of this piece is, I think the main point 
is, is it possible through tefillah to take a person out of Gehenna or whatever you want to call the punishment for Rishoyim and to somehow transfer him into the world of Schar? Is that possible? It seems that in Karawan, they were aware that some had made that argument, that the power of tefillah is so incredible that you could daven for someone who has passed away and through your prayers, maybe even through your Kaddish or other things, you might be able to somehow lift him and, and take him into a Gan Eden instead of the Gehenna that his actions brought upon him. Rabbeinu Nisim fights this idea tooth and nail. And the Sefer Achsidim quotes him and obviously agrees. So I, I want to read to you uh, the basic point. First, he sets up the idea that this world is the world to do avoda, and schar is all in the next world, as he says. Um, Kol mashiyegil et sadikim menatovas vahakovad vaoz bolamazeh, and even though we know that certain mitzvahs give you great benefit in this world, don't think that that in any way touches the schar for a tzaddik and Olam Abba. The schar of Olam Abba, however you understand it, powerful energy, dveikas to God, chocolate, ice cream, however you want to explain it, that is something that cannot be touched. Now it's true, um, there is a, an advantage of mitzvos that they have peros. And the Pasuk says, Imrut Sadik Kitov, There are, in a way, advantages of living the life of a tzaddik that give you what many people would consider a great gift in this world. But that is not schar, that's called peros. Like we say every day in our Mishnah, there is something called peros, and that is a wonderful byproduct. But the schar, the real dveikus and energy, that's an olam of kule oira. Now, you have a rosha as well. Who, of course, has done terrible averos. He could also have payros to those averos. Those averos that he does gives him negative energy. Gehenna, fire, lack of connection to God, hurt. There could be payros to averos as well. For example, sleeping with a married woman and you birth a mamzer, that's a payri of your avero. In the same way, a tzaddik could get benefits, wealth and respect and other positive things, which definitely feel good and are a shadow of what super schar is, 
the pain and suffering of an adulterer who now has to see a revealed uh, bastard son is obviously something which is which is painful. And he says there are he says those are called peros, but the real punishment for not controlling yourself and sleeping with that married woman, you're going to get all that pain in Olam Abba. That's just the peri here in this world. Now, as he says, Iker Maisov Muchonim Olam Abba. There's a peri here, which is Look at that guy. Oh, he fathered that child. Oh, he's a bum. All that is called peri. The main punishment is going to be in the next world. And then he brings, of course, a, uh, a, he brings a tosefta in peya, talking about how there are certain ter terrible averos that we know have those peros. And Avodah all have terrible payrolls in this world. person who's caught as a murderer is going to suffer. He's going to be put in prison. He's going to live with that guilt. All those things are payrolls, but those aren't the real punishment. He quotes the Tosefta mentioning how Lashon Hara is actually even worse than all of them. Because the Baal Lashon Hara will be punished, of course, but he's going to see uh, the ricochet effect of all the gossiping and slandering he's done in a way, but that'll be the payros of Lashon Hara, but that's not the actual uh, onesh of Lashon Hara. Um, again, typically, as you can see here, on the and of course the Yerushalmi quotes Psukim all about this, about this principle about what Olam Haze is and what happens here, and there's an interesting peros and the pure punishment and the pure scar and how Arayos and Shvichostoban of Odezora happen to be unique and distinct in terms of the intensity of the peros and how Lashon Hara is different. All of that you can find in the Yershal peros. And he's not a complete sadik, therefore. God will give him difficulty in this world um, in a way that is balanced. And this way, of course, his benefit in Olam Haba is totally incomplete. He says, this is in, both in our Talmud and in Talmud Eretz Yisrael. The reason why I mention Talmud Eretz Yisrael, look what he says here, One of the reasons I like the Yerushalmi and the reason why I quote it, Nisan says, is because it gets to the point quicker. And therefore, in many ways, it's easier to quote. The Bavli is a little more long-winded in terms of what it's trying to say. And therefore, the Yashaomi, and sometimes, at least when we're trying uh, to point to an idea and clarify it, Yashaomi is an easier path to take. Um, now, he says that if a person is not a tzaddik, but he has more mitzvahs than Averos. So, as we saw before, he should get punished for these Averos in order if God would like to give him more schar. Similarly, someone who 
it's not a, necessarily a Russia Gomer, but someone who has more Averis than mitzvahs. So uh, God, because he has not really turned the hump, he's not gone over the hump and become more of a tzaddik in that way, not a complete tzaddik, God will therefore do what he can to give him good things in this world in order to basically have the hammer come down hard in Olam And that's the Yerushalmi's Lashon. Rubos chuyos yorish ganeden, rova veros yorish gehenem. So you see from there that a tzaddik who happens to have done some averos, olam haba is basically untouched. Olam haza is where he will get his onesh. And if someone, for some reason, because some car hits him or some stupidity of some other person means he didn't live long enough to suffer a little bit to get punished for the Averis that he did, what happens to him? So here, Nisim says something which I believe is novel. He says he will not get a little bit of Gehenna. It's not like, well, a little Gehenna and a little Olamaba. No. No Gehenna. <laughs> if you live this life and you are basically better than you have Rovskuyos. So what happens is, is that your, your Olam Haba, your Schuyos, your positive energies become limited. But you don't get any negative stuff. Look what he says. He does not get any punishment on that because he already in his life has proven that he is a good guy. So even though it's true, he had Averos and some Meshuggah who was driving with not looking where he was going, hit him and kills him. And therefore he couldn't, he couldn't get that type of little sufferings that would have that would have uh, paid him for his Averos, what happens is God says, okay, what I'm going to do now is basically make your Olam Haba less. But you're not going to get oh, Gehenna or something like that. And the uh, same Robert thing, Kudelevich? Yes. But then, you know, through the Tfilah of the descendants of the other things, so the Aliyah can get the uh, the No, 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 the no, no, he doesn't believe in that. Can it get Aliyah? No. Higher? No, no. He says really? basically that's what it is. In other words, interesting. Right? interesting. And now you have the other guy who is not a Russia Gummer, but what happened? Uh, he should have, right? He should have gotten some mitzvahs paid off. So what happened? He he doesn't get any schar on his chuyos because he basically is what? He basically is sort of like not a Russia Gummer, but basically a Russia because he has more averos than mitzvahs. God is not going to give him. He, he needs to, he gets, he gets shunted into the bad line. And therefore he's getting pain. And he's not going to get scar. But you know what? His pain is a little bit less. The same way the tzaddik loses some of that positive vibes, the tzaddik meaning the tzaddik has more mitzvahs than averos. The one who has more averos than mitzvahs basically loses, I'm sorry, he, 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 it becomes a little bit less hot 
<laughs> and a little less time in the pain of Gehenna or whatever that is. Um, and if God actually does what he usually does, which is pay him off for his mitzvos, then he's going to get the full monty of his averos in Olamava. So in a way, it might be it's good that he was killed before, because this way, uh, well, his mitzvos doesn't give him any positive stuff in this world, but it sort of like lowers the temperature of the negative heat of Gehenna, you know, basically. Let's read it again. The schar of tzaddikim that they are supposed to get, a total tzaddik who didn't have any averos, and he has a complete super duper, he had peros as well, and he has super duper positive stuff coming for him. Ein derech l'kol Nothing, nothing. It could be the Satan, it could be Voldemort, uh, doesn't make a difference. Nobody has the ability to take anything of that away. That's the power of, that's what human life is. That's the way God structures the world. Your life generates organically unchangingly a certain amount of scar, of positive scar, and that can't be touched. And you're going to get it. And then if you're a Russia as well, if you're a Russia, there's no way that anyone can daven for you. There's no way you can daven that somehow you're not going to be in the bad place. And you're going to go, wait, right? Why? Because why is it that schar develops? It's not because God says, well, uh, you do these arbitrary things, I'll give you the, the buckets of ice cream. What is schar, he says? The schar is really organically connected to all the efforts to all the involvement, and we know there's so how difficult that is so often, and that's real. And all and what else? And the way you tried to resist, the way you strengthen yourself from not doing averos. That's what schar is. It's it, it, it's organic and it's there. And therefore, it must result in that beautiful, positive stuff. If you're a Russia that didn't do that stuff, how dare you think that anybody can get Olam Haba and get the big scar? How could you, how could it happen? Where could it come from? The Chela Tov comes from the guy that worked, right? The ant and the grasshopper, right? How, how could it happen? It, 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 you can't get it any other way. It's impossible. It's intellectually, it's intellectually rejected. 
And even though you'll find some places where they say the Tzadik Davind and the Atiro, like we have in this week's parsha, the very uh, aggressive Davining for the sinner. You know what it can do? It, the same way we saw the guy who was hit by the car, that the mitzvahs that he did can somehow lower the temperature, doesn't bring him into Gan Eden, doesn't bring him into heaven, whatever you want to call it. The same thing, tefillos have a possibility to lower the heat in hell. Why? And it's wrong, right? In other words, the same way you don't want to, emes means, that God cannot take away from a tzaddik anything from what he did. The peronius, the negative stuff, is also the din of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And that's the same truth. The same way nobody would ever think that somehow I could pray and get you out of your Gan Eden. You can't pray and get a guy out of hell. Now, it's possible that there, a, a, a person who God loves can give out prayers that can somehow take off some of the heat, depending on how significant the prayer is and how the nature of the, of the negative hell that the sinner is in. He says, take a look. The Gemara says that I could potter the oil men I did. Rebbe Lezer, I think, in Shimon Ben Yochai said, I could potter the world from did. That's all. But not that we could take somebody who is chayiv and give him some, say, because the tzaddik davent. The tzaddik davent for the guy, right? In other words, he's davening so much for this person, the Russia. God davens for the Rashoya. God is the best davener. God says, Shuve Eli, Shuvu. God says, Russia, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to all of you. And if you do Shuva, all that Peronius is going to be gone. If you do tshuva and change yourself, all that negative stuff, I'm, you're going to get skartov. But the tshuva, as he says, is b'day otamu. That's for the man to do. And the truth is, God makes tshuva easy, Rabbeinu Nisim says. And the truth is, that is a lot God's call to us that we can really hear if we want to. And the pathway to tshuva is much easier than some prayer that is said after the, after this man is dead by some tzaddik who's trying to get him out of Gehenna. <laughs> the guy in Gehenna doesn't even believe in that guy, right? <laughs> right? The guy's dominating for him, but in his lifetime, he had no connection to this guy. And, 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 and it's not like the, the man himself could do something, the one who's in that hell. Uh, uh, I, I have to, uh, uh, Rabbi Kimosh, I'm sorry, I have to, it really sounds like it could be um, a, a contradiction to, to the prevailing Christian attitude at the time. That, you know, Jesus went to uh, the uh, the hell to redeem all the, the sinners and those who follow him. Right, right. Maybe that was a reaction to it. It sounds, though, I, I don't deny that there might be Christological influences, but it sounds like it had already taken hold by some rabbinical or, or, or figures 
And otherwise he wouldn't really take so much time with this. It seems like there was such a prevailing idea that even though a person had died as a Russia, you could do something for him after his death. And, and, and if you get a tzaddik to daven for you, that tzaddik can somehow lift that person and take him into Ganeda. Um, he says, So if it's true that the, the tefillah of some tzaddik, whoever it is, whoever that person is, can somehow change things. So therefore, then what about the tshuva from God? Right? What about the fact that God opens you up for tshuva? That in Yom Kippur, God says, he doesn't just say, you could do tshuva. I will be mechaper you on Yom Kippur. I will change things. I will give you kapora. So, um, <laughs> so, do you, do you, and people go through Yom Kippur. So, true. Yom Kippur can can you can move through a Yom Kippur to be somewhat different than you were the year before, and the prayers I don't deny that the prayers after the death of someone could somehow help the person's Gehenna, but you don't get scar because of this. And if you take a look at what the Gemara says. Um, he says that I've quoted from Chazal, from my teachers, Yesh menadin lismoch. Melechas, don't go with what I'm saying. Don't go after anybody else. You know what it is? It's when you daven for someone after them, it's like Yom Kippur. If a person, even Yom Kippur, a person says, ah, you know what, I'll do tshuva, and Yom Kippur is going to be Machaper. Doesn't work. Because you're doing a sin with Yom Kippur in mind. So how could Yom Kippur work? So how could you say, well, the guy will sin and they'll daven for him after he's dead? Can't work. Harei nidcha, therefore I have completely obliterated anyone who's saying, and we don't know who it is, that Tefillah can generate a change in uh, designation. Therefore, and he says, he says, Rabbi Yochanan talked about Alicia, about Acher. He says, Rabbi Yochanan said, what I'm going to do is stop the fire from his cavern. Now, which is, right? As opposed to, Rabbeinu Nisim doesn't quote Rav Meir said he was going to do, right? Rav Meir was going to somehow lift him out of Gehenna. Rabbi Yochanan, all he did was he, he lowered the heat. But that's it. That's all the works. Maybe Rav Meir thought he could. But you see from the Gemara about Rabbi Yochanan, that same Gemara in Chagiga, that Rabbi Yochanan just said that he was able, that Rabbi Yochanan died, the, 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 the burning smoke that was coming out of Acher's grave uh, was diminished. He says, these are Fascinating. proofs. He says, these are proofs that it worked, but only to lower the temperature. So 
Therefore, he says, what I want you to get out of this, Rabbeinu Nisim says, is how great and amazing your life can be and the schar you will get from your efforts and, and, and for all the energies and all the nisyonos and the difficulties. That schar, which is being formed by you, every minute of your struggle in life of Torah, that is so precious, nobody can take that away from you. There's no evil sorcerer, sultan, or anything that can take that away. And of course, the same thing is true about the person who's of Balavera. And the truth is, he should realize that the Balavera can't get things worse. In other words, everything is din. Nobody can pray for Hitler to get it worse than he's supposed to. That is tzedek. That is emes. That can't change. So <laughs> that is this piece that is quoted, and, I, and I'm being Makatzer here, uh, by the in Sefer Aksidim from Rabbeinu Nisim. And you can see why this was something that was in the Sefer Megillah Storim. I don't know if, if all Jewish philosophies or Kabbalists uh, or, or Jewish thinkers agree with it, but here he is rolling up his sleeves and really struggling with a thorny issue, but I think a very life-affirming one. And you can see here why uh, people, Chokrim uh, like Rappaport and others, uh, look to uh, Rabbeinu Nisim as a voice of measured reason tinged with the type of honesty and humility. <laughs> he was clearly like the, the, the gourd uh, that he mentions before. Great, expansive, but uh, someone who, who wrote uh, with, with a modesty, but with a, a forcefulness um, that I think, again, uh, secured, at least in that period that we know uh, from the Arofel, that period that is so, in a way, opaque. He is one of the figures and forms that I think stand out uh, with clarity, and as someone that uh, we can understand and um, and even, I think, begin to emulate uh, his approach of how learning and his approach in philosophy. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.